Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Tony Tibbles, discussed CMCC clinics and implementation of CCGI resources in their curriculum. We also discussed the National Survey on Evidence-Informed Practice to Canadian Chiropractors, which is still open. This week we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Michelle Myers, Executive Director of Research and Innovation and Professor with the Centre for Healthcare Innovation and Policy with Northwestern Health Sciences University. Before we interview Michelle, Kent and I would like to discuss the recent JCCA issue. Hi Kent, how have you been? Uh, I've been doing pretty well. It's uh, Calgary's getting ready to have yet another snowstorm, so I'm just trying to work on my snow shoveling form. <laughs> good, good. Well, don't hurt your back out here. We're, uh, we're just heavy in rain. That's about it in Vancouver. Um, uh, must be nice. The, the, uh, the recent JCCA issue is a pretty big one. What made this edition so special? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, it was uh, our annual sports edition. So the, I don't know how many of the listeners know, but every year we have uh, uh, typically the December edition is our is our sports issue. So we had several pieces in in there that we think are, are going to be pretty high impact and, and pretty relevant for readers. Um, and then more importantly, this year, this time around, um, it was actually our 60th, 60th anniversary issue. Um, so with that, we sort of wanted to do something special. So I I assembled a bit of an all-star team of authors and, and asked several of them to uh, several of them to write uh, commentaries that you know looked at important issues in the profession or kind of future-looking future-looking type articles as well. Um, so we had um, Andre Boussier from CCGI wrote a commentary. Simon French and a lot of the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation chairs wrote another on on a research on the research agendas. Um, Jeff Outerbridge and Scott Haldeman wrote uh, an article on world spine care. Uh, Paul Bruno wrote one, and then our guest today, Michelle Myers, wrote one looking at uh, at the future of the profession with uh, with millennials in charge, which I think we'll talk about later. So it's it's a really exciting issue, and I was really uh, really happy and honored that I got to be uh, in the chair of editor. It's uh, as the person helping put it forth. That's great, I mean, and I I always love that the articles are open access. That makes it easy for those who don't have a subscription to uh, to uh, peer reviewed journals. Um, it's a really good segue as we introduce our guest today, Dr. Michelle Myers. Uh, Dr. Myers' professional goal is to facilitate the pragmatic use of research to both inform clinical practice and shape public health policy. Her research is focused on clinical trials that answer practical questions, including are patient outcomes improved with co-management by different provider types? Is short-term treatment or long-term management a better approach for chronic musculoskeletal conditions? What aspects of care matter most to patients? It is essential that the information gained in these and other studies is translated into knowledge that improves patient care, policy guidelines, access, and reimbursement. She's excited about her work because she believes in the capacity for integrative and complementary professions to be a positive force to improving the landscape of healthcare. When not at work, she enjoys traveling, reading, running, and baking pies. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for extending the invitation. Have you done any traveling lately? (laughs) (laughs) I have been on the road quite a bit recently, um, talking about the ACA Choosing Wisely campaign, which I think we'll be talking about a little bit later, and um, doing a couple of continuing education seminars. So I stay busy. Fantastic. Probably not a lot of time to be baking pies then. (laughs) I managed to fit it in. (laughs) Depending on how much running I did, they kind of go in tandem. I was I was just going to say it's too bad we do these interviews virtually or otherwise I'd be hoping for a pie showing up in the in the interview room. I, I know it makes me a popular guest. <laughs> I bet. Um, so yeah, Michelle, thanks for thanks for joining us. 
Um, it's sort of looking at some of your titles that you that you have at Northwestern, it seems like innovation is a big is a big driver. What can you tell us about your role and what's uh, in your role and and what's happening at Northwestern that's really innovative these days? Sure. Yeah. So my my role is basically threefold. I'm responsible for coordinating and executing our research agenda. And then I spent a lot of my time leveraging the research and evidence base to inform healthcare policy, both at a, a state level, I live in Minnesota in the United States, as well as on a federal level. And then I'm also responsible for supporting Northwestern innovation agenda. So these are my own innovation projects. Um, sometimes the university has special innovation initiatives that I uh, certainly help facilitate or, or um, support or sometimes lead, and then also supporting faculty and our students in their innovation ideas and creating a platform for them, whether it's connecting them with resources or giving them some additional kind of support so that they can execute their own innovation projects. Oh, that's great. Um, kind of along the lines of innovation, one of the things that, you know we've been trying to do and we've been noticing lately in the profession is the emergence of of the popularity of podcasts. So, you know, our podcast here, uh, Dean Smith's Chiropractic Science Podcast, um, it seems like a good way to engage colleagues. You're one of the you know more popular podcast podcast guests that we've had on the show, and and you've been on Dean's show and the Explorer Chiropractic Podcast as well. What do you think are some of the, the more effective knowledge translation strategies out, out there these days? Do you think it's in-person collaborations like PBRNs or journal clubs or 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 uh, conferences, or do you think more electronic-based or things that can be done remotely like you know webinars or social media or podcasts? What what do you favor these days? You know, I, I think the answer to your question is yes. I think those are all effective strategies. I think it depends on who your target audience is more than anything. Um, you know, most of the KT evidence points us towards multimodal strategies where you're, you're hitting your stakeholders through several different means. And I think the reason we see that as being most effective is because, you know, A, repeat exposure is always good, but B, you know, different people are open to receiving information through different pathways. And I think, especially when you're talking about a healthcare profession like chiropractors, you've got a range of millennials who I think expect things to be delivered digitally um, in small snippets of information um, and, you know, something where they can, you know, listen to it on a run or in their commute. Um, so podcasts are certainly popular um, with that segment of the profession all the way through, I think, more traditional chiropractors who really appreciate the one-on-one, -on -one, are used to a lecture format, the sage on the stage type knowledge translation and everything in between. So um, I, I think really, as we're thinking about effective KT strategies in chiropractic, we've got to be either pointed about a specific audience that we're targeting or blanket them with lots of different methods of dissemination. Absolutely. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do at CCGI is just trying to figure out all kinds of different ways to make sure that we're getting, you know, getting the important messages and the, and the resources out to clinicians. Yeah, I think that's something CCGI has done really well because you really are meeting people passively and actively using different types of technology, which is really smart. And I think what's what's also really good is thinking of the ways to leverage how you package this. So it's not just a one-off for a podcast, but how do you use the podcast to maybe use it in a flipped classroom in, in a university's curricula and have them listen to the podcast to come to school prepared to discuss it or, you know, all the different ways that these things can be repackaged and reused so that 
in a in a profession where you know resources are are tight, like most other professions, we're smart about these knowledge translation um, intervention strategies. Definitely, getting the biggest bang for your buck is is uh, <laughs> probably one of the more accurate <laughs> sayings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, you know that kind of transitions as well into you know the next topic, which is you know. We, we consume knowledge in different ways, certainly in different age group brackets. We typically uh, learn and consume knowledge in different ways. And, and you recently published an article in the JCCA. It was titled, Our Future in the Hands of Millennials. And we were talking earlier before we started recording that, you know, as a millennial, I'm both terrified and excited by the prospect of the future in our hands. So how do you think journals and research will evolve over the next 20 years? Well, I, I think that we're already seeing the migration towards solely electronic or digital platforms. Um, you know, the days of a paper journal, I think, are numbered as nostalgic as some people feel about receiving their issue and letting it sit mm -hmm. on the nightstand for months and months <laughs> not being read. You know, I, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know if this is a phenomenon in Canada, but in the U.S., we have some new libraries that are solely digital. I mean, not a piece of paper in the library. And so, you know, I think in the future of, of journals, that's certainly the direction it's heading. And I think journals are going to be responsible for more of that knowledge translation piece and for creating summaries um, and layperson facing materials to take more responsibility to actually get the knowledge from the research into the hands of a variety of stakeholders. You know, I, I heard someone describe you know, the research has published in peer-reviewed journals as a conversation between scientists. And I think that's feeding into this, this leg that we see between what research is out there and what clinicians are doing in practice. And I, as I said before, I think journals are going to have a greater and greater responsibility in making sure that they're distilling the information responsibly in ways that is, is getting the information into the hands of the stakeholder. I, I think you're 100% right there, Michelle. You know, as, as the editor of a journal, it's uh, the days of you know just basically pressing print and then you know sending it off to the off to be distributed by mail. Those those are long gone, and now you know when an, when an edition is is ready to be published, that's when a, you know just an additional part of the job really kicks in. So getting word out by social media and making sure we're in get, engaging the membership of the Canadian Chiropractic Association and getting word out to them. So it's uh, the, 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 the role of the editor and, and the editorial board is, is certainly evolving continuously. Yeah, as is the role of the researcher, which I think is really pushing our community to think about itself in a lot of different ways. Um, because, you know, I, I think <laughs> you, you think of the stereotypical research scientist and it's not exactly a people person, not exactly somebody who you have in front of, you know, large crowds usually. And so I think increasingly, you know, as a researcher submitting to journals, I, you know, press upload for my, my manuscript draft, but I'm also asked, what is your Twitter handle feed? I'm also asked, you know, can you create a, a 60 second video summarizing your findings? Can you upload some slides in case other people want to you know, use this in different, different presentations? So what's being asked of a research scientist is actually a lot different as well because of, of this phenomenon. And, you know, we have this publisher perish mentality and, you know, now it's not just published, but it's, you know, make sure you've got a good, good visibility on social media because that influences your, 
your um, uh, the ratings for your your article. Yeah, and I think we're we're steering towards um, more more demand around researchers needing to have uh, you know a knowledge translation plan, or at least um, have some idea of how they're going to distribute their their message to to the two clinicians in in a way that's more robust than, than just in, in print and uh, and we're, we're seeing that you know in areas where we're able to talk about uh, research via podcasts or conferences or or other means and even social media I, I get a, a, a significant amount of my information from actually researchers on Twitter who, who post snippets um, in that in that way so um, a multifaceted approach is you're, you're right I think really needed and it's it seems to be a growing trend yeah, yeah I, I think it makes us an exciting time to be engaged in research and knowledge translation because while it's this extra layer of expectation, it's really helping to achieve that end goal. And that is, you know, letting your research influence how the health system operates. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing I've, I've found interesting over the last couple of years is uh, sort of in the development of ResearchGate.net, um, which a lot of our listeners may not be aware of it, but ResearchGate is almost like a, well, it's a social media platform for researchers to share your work, connect with other researchers, follow and and sort of see what, what other people are doing. And uh, yeah, that's it's just another way that, and there's they have metrics where you can kind of keep track of you know how impactful your work your work is, and you actually get there's a couple of different scores that can be generated, and um, that's a, that's been another you know just another thing for us to upload our work onto, hey? Yeah, yeah, just another thing. You know, there's probably <laughs> a breaking point in in this trajectory where um, you know if you're thinking about all the different places and platforms that you need to communicate your work, you know, that's like half of your job right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I've been thinking a lot lately, and especially with the invitation to be on this podcast about, you know, what's next after that? And trying to anticipate, you know, what does this look like moving forward? Because a lot of the, the social media platforms are already sort of on the back end of probably their shelf life. Um, yeah. So as we are migrating, you know, I, I think the younger generations are don't even have the time for Facebook, don't even have the time for Twitter and just need like a Snapchat kind of quick thing. How are we possibly going to responsibly convey information in, you know, incrementally smaller time bits? That's I think a- that's going to be a real challenge. And I think, yeah. you know, we, we are cultivating a society where people are, I mean, don't give me more than a soundbite. Mm-hmm. So it's really going to be hard for scientists to, convey the, the complexity and the nuance that we like to spend hours talking about on any one study, conveying it in a responsible way that is useful for people and it, it is actually you know, going to be taken up by society and by systems. Well, and also how will researchers be able to find the time to, to actually conduct that research when they're spending a great deal of their time either grant writing and or working on knowledge translation strategies for, for their work too? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) As I were talking, I'm writing my resume for a different kind of job. No, (laughs) No, it's it's 
you know, it's exciting and it's scary. Didn't you say you're terrified and excited about being a millennial? I mean, <laughs> this is a terrifying and exciting time to be involved in research. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And and so you know, I asked I asked how the research do you think journals and research will evolve over the next twenty years? But uh, you know, um, parallel to that, how do you see the profession evolving over the next twenty years? And I I know you don't have a, a crystal ball, but but uh, w w you know, what are the possibilities? Where do you see things headed? Well, I do have a crystal ball. That's one of my innovations. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. You know, it's that is such a obviously ridiculously hard question to answer because it could be in a lot of different directions. I know, I hope that the profession evolves to more closely align with, you know, evidence-informed patient-centered care. And I think that's definitely part of our DNA as a profession, that, that patient-centeredness is something we take such pride on. And I would love to see research in chiropractic try to, and, and stay with me for this one, quantify <laughs> what's in the special sauce of chiropractic. You know, what, what is it about our patient-centeredness that can be understood and scaled? And I think if chiropractors found a way to really leverage and capitalize that, that element about our care that seems to result in such high patient satisfaction and such patient loyalty, I think it could be a really exciting next 20 years because I think it would not only, you know, help support and sustain chiropractic, but could be something the rest of our healthcare system could learn from. And I think that that's a really interesting leadership opportunity for chiropractic. You know, this is a space where, you know, we outshine lots of other professions and, um, you know, we need to understand that better and and scale it. I, I agree with you completely, Michelle. That's uh, and that's actually been part of some of my research that I'm doing in in my PhD program is is looking at at patient centered. You know, one of those components, just patient centeredness, uh, because that has always been the reputation of our of the profession. And but it's you know there there can be challenges to quantifying it and and figuring out okay what why do our patients like us so much? What are what are we doing right? And, and how do we capitalize on that going forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and that kind of dances around some of the, you know, where the current state of placebo research is today and, and thinking about the nonspecific effects of care and, and you know, not, not using that as a, a negative, but said, you know, well, how can we turn this into a really positive thing? And we know how much experience influences the perception of, of, of improvement and global perceived effect. And, um, you know, these are just really, really rich areas for us to jump right into, especially as I think everybody really accepts a, a biopsychosocial model of managing musculoskeletal care. So, you know, I think that's a really fun direction for chiropractic over the next 20 years. And I think the success of much of that is going to be predicated on how well we collaborate. Um, collaborate with ourselves, collaborate with other professions, a really wide range of stakeholders in the healthcare marketplace. And, um, you know, that's probably the piece that is is ours to lose. When, when you talk about collaboration, like, um, what do you see as some of the, the biggest barriers these days? Um, time. I think time is a huge barrier. Um, I think every healthcare profession would say time is a barrier because more and more is being asked of, of providers and educational institutions and, and researchers all across the board. So I think the time to meaningfully collaborate is, is certainly an issue. Um, 
it kind of feels like an excuse the second it leaves my mouth. But I think that's a, a real issue. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, interprofessional education is, is still an emerging concept in chiropractic. And I think the more quickly we, we make strides towards that in earnest, I think the better. I think there's a lot of international models that are, are certainly outpacing what we have in the United States here, or I dare say North America um, on a lot of levels. And there's a lot to learn from there and emulate. Um, it, it seems like the seeds of collaboration really have to germinate from, I think the millennial generation of chiropractors, because this is a, a cohort or a cross section of chiropractic that for whom collaboration is a much more natural concept. It's not just a natural concept, but I think it's, you know, if I say something about difficulties collaborating, sometimes I get funny, confused looks from millennials who think, what's the problem? You know, it's just so part of their, their fiber, their being. So I think um, we have a lot to learn from millennials by way of how do we enhance our collaborative efforts. Oh, definitely. I, th I think that's a great, that's a great point. And, you know, sometimes th you know, the notion that just because, you know, some of those barriers have existed in the past doesn't, you know, you can, I, I think sometimes our younger generation just doesn't even accept like, well, why, why do we bother accepting that as a, as a, as a barrier or an issue and just kind of push through? Yeah. It's funny. What's, what's a legitimate barrier to one generation is an excuse to another. And, yeah. um, you know, with, with technology, some of those, you know, time barriers or proximity barriers that I think, um, stood in the way of collaboration from more seasoned chiropractors, you know, certainly aren't there to the same effect for millennials. But then what millennials are probably facing is information overload in a way that more, more seasoned chiropractors aren't confronted with because they aren't as digitally dialed in and they don't have the same expectations around instantaneous communication and and making yourself available to instantaneous communication. So it's it's an interesting um, maybe double-edged sword to think about how technology is and isn't facilitating better communication and collaboration. Well, that's, yeah, the very, very good point. Um, so one of the things that we mentioned that you've, you've been working on is you've been working with the American Chiropractic Association's Choosing Wisely campaign. Um, what can you tell us about your role with the ACA and, and that campaign? Sure. So my role, I wear a few hats with the ACA. I'm the vice president of the Council of Delegates, which um, assigns me a seat on our board of governors. So I'm involved at that level. Um, but I also chair our um, clinical guidelines review committee, which I think gave me a, a foray into some collaboration with CDCGI. Um, they've been a great partner in helping to make sure that that on both sides of the border, we're embracing evidence-informed practice and, and best practice guidelines and, and thinking and communicating similarly about which guidelines actually um, represent those that are a best practice standard for chiropractic. So that's that's been a really good collaboration and we're appreciative of that. Um, but relative to, to choosing wisely, it's a really nice example of, of interprofessional collaboration. So choosing wisely is an initiative between in Consumer Reports, um, who reviews all kinds of products and services um, for the lay public and helps to guide informed decision-making on lots of different levels. It's a collaboration between Consumer Reports and the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. And they've started this initiative to 
work with professional associations and societies and ask the question, are there commonly utilized services um, or procedures that are kind of ubiquitous in your field, but actually aren't very well supported by the evidence? And I think it's trying to bridge that gap between the knowledge gap between what the evidence shows and what's happening in practice, because there is a known lag time there. So um, we have been working with them for a number of years to create a list of five different recommendations that are really just meant to encourage conversation between patients and chiropractors. And they were based on um, five different commonly used um, techniques and, and things in practice for which the evidence isn't very supportive of. Um, so they're, they're completely grounded in the research base. Um, many of them actually overlap with recommendations of lots of other different disciplines and specialties, so there's some consistency there. Um, they aren't guidelines, but really, again, are just meant to spark a conversation between patients and providers to make sure that you know, patients are, are part of an engaged decision-making process and that providers are very conscious about the different things that they're recommending to their patients. So I, I think it's a brilliant campaign. It's been a wonderful partnership and collaboration for us, and it has sparked a lot of conversation. Um, some good, some challenging, but I think challenging our, our deeply held assumptions and convictions is something we have not done a lot of in this profession. And um, initiatives like this that can spark the conversation and, and ask us or lead us to asking more questions and more good research questions worth investigating is always time well spent. So, you know, that's choosing wisely in a, in a nutshell. And, um, you know, this, this organization has done a great job creating really beautiful patient-facing materials, explaining what the recommendations are to patients and, and helping to guide their decision-making because it, it, it can be really hard to be a consumer in this healthcare market space. So um, we're really proud to be partners with Choosing Wisely in this initiative and um, look forward to more iterations and more collaborations like this to come. Well, and the fact that this uh, this campaign is, is making its way across the border, I mean, practitioners here have, know about the campaign and, and have been uh, been following it, so it clearly is making an impact if it's if it's trickling all the way up to Canada. Yeah, which is which is exciting. You know, we're chiropractic is such a small profession, a small community, relatively speaking, and it just underscores the urgency, I think, with which our national associations and, and our colleges and, and all the different stakeholders in chiropractic really need to collaborate to share resources, um, to share experiences, and to make sure that, that the best practices on all those different levels are, are being executed uniformly. And as I think about the, the profession evolving over the next 20 years, which was your last question, um, you know, I, I think the degree to which we collaborate with one another and, and like I said, share resources and leverage common best practices, you know, it's going to create more positive uniformity in chiropractic and help, I think, elevate the stature of the profession uh, within the broader context of healthcare. Definitely. I sure hope so. <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah, well, we're going to have to wrap things up here. Unfortunately, I feel like we'd talk for hours here, but uh, we really want to thank you for your time, Michelle. And uh, we're really happy that you were able to spend it with us today. And, 
Um, for, for the listeners, it's that time of the show where we ask you for a favor. We, we have a new CCGI Facebook page, and we would welcome you to be a part of our online community. Uh, and again, Michelle, just thank you so much for taking the time and, and uh, speaking with us. Yeah, it was great to be here. Yeah, Michelle, we, we really appreciate you taking taking the time and, and being with us. And thanks again to our listeners for, for tuning in. Uh, we look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.